Well, if you would, open your Bibles to Psalm 34. It's on page 463 of your Pew Bible, or as always, you can just follow along in your bulletin as it's printed there. You know, it's fitting that we conclude our summer sermon series titled, um, centered on the Psalms, with Psalm 34. Why is that? Well, it's a psalm of thanksgiving. It helps us to rejoice and give thanks for who God is for his people. He is our refuge and and he is our redeemer. Uh, I don't know about you, but I need reminding of that. In this psalm, uh, David invites us once again to, to taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's do that together. Psalm 34 of David. When he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out, and he went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and he delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips um, from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous and his ears towards their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, We must know his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this kind and gracious word to us. A tender reminder in our busy lives that there is no greater one to feast upon, to take refuge in than you, O Lord. May our hearts be softened to this truth. May we be eager to repent of any ways that uh, harm us. And may we all anew taste and see that you were good this morning, we pray. Amen. A friend of mine in seminary said it was the best meal he had ever eaten. 
And so when Leslie and I celebrated our 10-year anniversary in Barcelona in 2009, we made our way to Restaurant Hoffman around 8 o'clock. And in true Spanish style, it wasn't open yet. (laughs) But the hostess promised us a table soon. You know, the restaurant is attached to a renowned culinary school. And may I say, it must be one fine school. You see, I've never really enjoyed poached eggs. (laughs) But these poached eggs, oh my word, they were astounding. That night we enjoyed one small dish after another of exquisitely prepared food. And the service was impeccable. I truly wish you could have been there that night on our wedding anniversary. But maybe not. It have been a little awkward. But if you could just taste and see, if you could have just been there, well, you would have rejoiced with us. And you would know what I'm talking about. David in Psalm 34 uses the imagery of a superb meal to create in us a deep desire to feast. But not on food, but rather upon God himself. Feast on God, taste and see that he is good, and then do the only logical thing. Have him to be your refuge in life and in death. You know, the problem we have as humans is, uh, is this. We seek refuge in almost anything other than God. And so our lives, so when our lives experience trouble, and they always do, we find out that our earthly refuges did not turn out to be what we had expected, what we had hoped for. Whether it be our wit or our pedigree or our circle of friends or our nest eggs or whatever, in the end, they cannot deliver us from our greatest troubles. You know, as the rock band, the Eagles sang, every form of refuge has its price. It's true, isn't it? For instance, at a young age, if you make youth and beauty your refuge, guess what? At some point, youth and beauty will become your cruel master. You will become envious of younger, firmer women. And in an effort to dress your wounds, you will gossip about other women's botched surgeries. And in the end, instead of youth and beauty, your soul will become hard and dry and wrinkly. Yes, every form of refuge has its price. But not so what King David invites us to do this morning. Not so what he is talking about. King David invites us to do something that once done causes us to see life differently and live life differently. David invites us to feast on the Lord. For in doing so, we experience God's good care in this life and in the next. That's the big point this morning. Psalm 34 is divided into two large sections. Verses 1 through 10 form one, and verses 11 through 20 form another. Now, David Kidner, a great commentator, he he titles the first division, Rejoice With Me, and the second division, Learn From Me. Another commentator, Wilcox, titles them, The Singing and the Sermon. (laughs) This morning, we will call them the testimony and the teaching. First, the testimony. You know... Today, I hardly buy anything without first listening to testimonies. If a restaurant isn't at least three and a half stars on Yelp, I'm not going in. If a pillow doesn't get four stars on Amazon, Amazon, I'm not adding it to my cart. 
Testimonies move us to action. They give us confidence to try something we might not otherwise. This first section, 11 through 22, uh, David, David testifies to God's goodness so that we too may entrust our lives to God. Now this first section, the testimony, has three parts. In verses 1 through 3, David gives, David gives the Lord a five-star rating. All right? and, and then he says, join with me in giving him your highest rating. Well, maybe not exactly, but you know my point. All right, here's verse one. It's an amazing testimony. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Now, in the original Hebrew, David is saying in every situation, the good or the bad, it does not matter. It doesn't matter the circumstances. I will rate God supreme overall. Let me ask you, are you able to do that? Not just the good times, but the tough ones as well. Then in verse two, David says, my soul boasts in the Lord. Now, Think about this, if you will. David was a very gifted man. He was strong. He was smart. He was handsome, right? Uh, He was a war hero of epic proportions. I mean, he slayed Goliath after all, right? Everywhere he went, people sang songs about him. So like many of us here, David had great natural gifts and abilities. You know, you and I can get very far in life with our natural gifts and abilities. But the scary thing is, our natural gifts and abilities often lead us away from God, not towards him. So David testifies that no matter how successful he is, he boasts only in the Lord. Now, not everyone will bend a knee and boast in the Lord. Why? They lack humility. Look at the second line of verse 2. Let the humble hear and be glad. Pride is the human trait that prevents all who have it from tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. Until you've been humbled, you will see no need for seeking refuge in the Lord. But let the humble be glad. In verse 3, David invites us all to join in. He says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Now, what does it mean for you to magnify the Lord? Well, in real simple, simple terms, it means moving your rating from three and a half stars to five. And when you write in the description of your review, you said, I would have given it six stars if I could. Oh, that we would see God rightly. Oh, that we would taste and see his goodness. That we may magnify his goodness in our own minds and exalt him as a result of it. The second part is verses 4 through 7. And, and, and we hear that the Lord isn't just David's Lord, but he's to be all of, our Lord, all of our Lord's as well. Look at verse 4. He says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. David is referring to a real event that happened in his life wherein he cried out to God, God heard him, and he delivered him. How do we know this is a real event in his life? Well, look at the introduction to this psalm. What does it say? It says, of David, right? When he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. You can read this entire account in 1 Samuel 19, uh, 20 and 21. But let me summarize it here. David is forced to flee from Israel. The king, Saul, is out of his mind and he wants David killed. The crazy thing is, David, where does he go? He flees to enemy territory. He goes to the land of the Philistines. And and he's all alone and he comes before Achish, the king of Gath, who is also called Abimelech. And he thought he would be somewhat well-received. You know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? Or so the saying goes. 
But one of Achish's servants goes, that's David. You should hear what they sing about him. He's going to be king someday. He is not your friend. You should not house him here. David says, "Uh uh-oh, that's not good. He's in great danger. He's fearful. What will I do? He decides, I will act insane in the king's presence. David begins scratching on the walls. He begins spewing saliva down his beard. And David fools the king. The king says, get the heck out of here. That is what David is recounting in verse 4. He's terrified for his life. Verse 4, he says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. Now the Hebrew word translated fears here is the word megora. It's different from the the Hebrew word for fear that we see further down in the text. It speaks of terror or dread. David was consumed with fear. What he thought would be a safe refuge from his trouble turned out to be even greater trouble. But in his fear, he sought the Lord and the Lord answered him. And he delivered him from all his fears. Have you ever done that? Have you ever found yourself in great fear and you seek the Lord? You're in over your head. You sought the Lord and he delivered you? You know what I'm talking about. You know what David is referring to. In verse 4, David gives us his testimony. But in 5 through 7, he says his testimony is really to be all the testimony of those who seek the Lord. Look at verse 5. He says, those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be Ashamed. Have you ever banked your life on something big? Yeah, that, that prestigious college degree, some perfect relationship that just had to happen, some momentous career change, thinking that you would find refuge there only to find that in the end your dreams didn't even come close. What a letdown. Do you remember that sinking feeling of disappointment when things didn't quite work out? That is what David is referring to here when he says their faces shall never be ashamed. The the word ashamed here refers to that disappointment you feel at, at not finding what you had hoped for. Listen to David's testimony. It's this. When you seek refuge in God, you will never be disappointed because you didn't find what you had hoped for. In other words, when God is your refuge, he will always deliver. As we will see, he often doesn't deliver you out of your circumstances, but he delivers joy and contentment and hope in the thick of it. And it changes you, right? Look what David says. David says, those who look to him, instead of being downcast in disappointment, what what are they? They are radiant. You know, I see this all the time in many of you. Almost every week, someone comes into my office radiating a divine joy, and they say, Mark, you're never going to believe what God has done in my life. And then uh, I act surprised. (laughs) I nod my head thinking, whatever it is, I'm really not going to be surprised. See, the Lord delivers his people from their fears, and he makes their faces to be radiant with joy. David's testimony continues in verses 6 and 7. He says, this poor man, David's referring to himself, this poor man, he's calling himself poor. This poor man cried um, to the Lord. The Lord heard him and saved him out of all the troubles. Now know this, verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around all those who fear him and delivers them. The Bible uses the phrase angel of of the Lord to refer to God himself coming down to earth. 
David is saying, just as I cried to the Lord and he saved me, so too you can cry and be saved. In fact, God encamps. What a beautiful picture. God encamps around all who fear him and he delivers them. Now, let's not get hung up on this word fear. Perhaps you're here this morning and you just don't like that idea of fearing God. This fear that we see in in verse 4 is a different Hebrew word. Instead of terror or dread, it refers to like a healthy fear. It's a healthy fear to be afraid of heights, right? Um, Fear of the Lord is to have a proper reverence or awe concerning God. The Bible repeatedly tells us that it is fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. In other words, if you're ever to really come to know God and to properly understand him, you must come in humility, with a healthy fear and reverence or awe. But what a wonderful picture for our minds. When we are surrounded by the sinful brokenness of this world, even more so, God is encamped around us to deliver us. Do you see that? Do you understand that? Can you appropriate that to your circumstances, perhaps even now? Verse 8 through 10, David testifies that the Lord is to be trusted. Just taste and see for yourself. The Lord is good. And by the way, make him your refuge in life. Verses 9 and 10, he invites us to have a proper stance before God and to see something. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. Those who fear him have no lack. The young lion suffers want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. When you approach the Lord with, in, in reverence and awe, with, with depending upon his mercy and grace, that is, when, when you make the Lord your refuge, you have no lack. That's David's testimony. How will we respond? Will you taste and see that the Lord is good, perhaps for the first time or perhaps anew this morning? Will you entrust God and make him to be your refuge? That's the testimony After the testimony comes the teaching. And it kind of makes sense, right? I mean, if you were to tell me you're going to Barcelona, I would tell you, no doubt, my testimony about Restaurant Hoffman. I would tell you it was the best meal I've ever eaten. I give it six stars out of five. Uh, I'd sing praises about this restaurant, and I would invite you as well. And if you said that you were going to go there, that is, you, what, believe my testimony, then you would ask me to be what? To be taught, wouldn't you? Tell me, Mark, how do you spell Hoffman? Where is it located? Is it on Las Ramblas? What is the proper attire? Attire. By the way, what time do they really open? (laughs) So it's fitting, right, that after David's testimony comes the teaching. For all who commit to make the Lord their refuge, there are three things we need to be taught. I'm borrowing some of these titles from Michael Wilcock. Here's what we need to learn. We need to learn what the Lord wants, what the Lord does, and what the Lord promises. First, what the Lord wants. The Lord wants us to long for what is good and to live it out in our lives. Faithful obedience. To put off evil and put on good. Verses 11 through 14 read like wisdom literature out of the Proverbs, right? It begins with a call to listen to wisdom. 11, uh, come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Again, why do we need to fear the Lord? Well, because, as we said, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You see, until you see and understand God right, rightly, he will remain some spoil sport up in the sky with a bunch of rules in order to make your life drudgery. But when we investigate God, we, we come to see that God is good. 
And we come to see that God actually knows what good is. And we come to see that God wants his people to experience good and be good. Look at verse 12. It's a rhetorical question. Look at it. What man is there who desires life? Uh, pretty much everybody. Uh, and loves many days. Ah, it's probably all of us here. I think. That he may see good. Uh, David, this is kind of a funny question, isn't it? The answer is every man, woman, and child desires a good life with many good days to enjoy. God knows this about us. He knows that we hunger and thirst for goodness, too. The problem is we, we seek it in almost every place but God himself. Let me do a little diagnostics here with you. Let me ask you some questions. First is, when God says you are to have no other gods before me, do you think he's trying to limit your enjoyment in life? When God says flee from idols, do, he, do you think he's trying to spoil the fun for you? Or... Is he protecting you from attaching your heart and soul to something that can never deliver the good that you want from it? When God says, do not covet your neighbor's possessions or his wife, is that a good command? I mean, if you welcome it into your life, will it keep you from harm and promote goodness in life in your life? Of course it will. What does envy do to you? Envy is like a self-administered poison for your soul. Coveting brings all sorts of unhealthy realities into our lives and into our homes. My friends, God's law is not given to spoil our fun, but to magnify God's goodness in our lives. God's laws flow from a God of goodness to a people that that God is making good by his grace. God wants his people to experience good. And one of the ways we experience good is is to obey his good laws and to be agents of good in our world. Look at verse 13. He says, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Sounds like a good thing, right? I think so. Uh, And then verse 14, turn away from evil and now positively do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Oh, that we would be those people. There'd be more goodness in our world and more goodness in our lives, right? We reap what we sow. David is teaching us that if you say you desire a life that sees good, then stop doing evil and do what is good. Be agents for peace and pursue it. God wants his people to experience his goodness. He wants us to be good. Because being good... Brings goodness to life. Do you see this? Do you see how God's laws are not there in order to make life worse, but in order to make life good? Let me ask you, what are some of the things in your life that you need to turn away from? Things which the word of God says no to, for good reason. Turn from them. Pursue what is good. Pursue peace. And don't be surprised when good things come into your life. So that's what the Lord wants. He wants good for us. 
In the next section, we, learn, we, we move from our obedience to God's grace. What does the Lord do? We see this in verses 15 through 18. What do we see God doing? We see God giving grace to the humble. Now, you can say, but I don't see the word grace in there. <laughs> well, it's not, it's not used there. But when you see what's going on, how personal God is, and how gracious he is, and how much attention he gives to his people, you cannot help but say God is being gracious here. Look at throughout this verse, these verses, it shows us that God, God turns his eyes and, and, and his ears to our cries. He listens as they cry out. He hears and he delivers. And look at verse 18. Check this out. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Consider this. David teaches that Christians are to expect trouble and hardship. We, we must know that there will be times when we are brokenhearted and crushed in spirit. Some of you are going through this right now. You've lost a, a loved one and you cannot figure out how you're going to proceed in life from here. Or perhaps you have a relationship that is so strained that you aren't even sure if it's worth sticking out. David is teaching you that God is watching over the righteous. He sees and hears and acts on their behalf. The word righteous appears four times in, in our verses. Understand this. The righteous are not the self-righteous. The people who think they are good before God simply because of this good life they live. No, far from it. They are the humble of verse 2. They are the ones who magnify the Lord in verse 3. They are the ones in verses 4 and 6 that seek the Lord and cry out to him. They are the ones who live in reverent fear in verses 9 and 11. They are the poor in spirit who feel crushed by life's affliction in 18 and 19. So let's be clear, the righteous are not the self-righteous. They, the, they know that God is holy and they are not. And they know that their relationship with God is based purely upon his grace and his mercy towards them. It's the righteous that the Lord sees and hears and delivers and saves and is near to. Now why would David make this part of his teaching? Because isn't it true? We are prone to think that God is not near when we are in times of deep trouble. When things get so bad that we become brokenhearted and crushed in spirit, we need reminding that our Lord is near to give grace and to deliver us in his timing. So David teaches us what the Lord wants and what the Lord does. Lastly, let's be taught what the Lord promises. The last part, verses 19 through 22. David here teaches us that the Lord promises deliverance and redemption. And that this deliverance and redemption isn't just for this life, but also it's for the life to come. First, deliverance and redemption in this life. David is speaking from experience when he says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Once again, let's be clear on this. A relationship with God does not exempt you from troubles. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. You know, unfortunately, many Christians, when they experience hardship, they turn away from God. Why? They foolishly think that they've done their part and God owes them something. They've been faithful tithers. They've been teaching in the Sunday school. And now, God, this is what you give me in response? A, a sick child, a belligerent spouse, financial crisis? 
Christian, understand this. God does not owe you any comforts in this life. God never gives you anything because of your so-called good Christian living has somehow put him in, your, in his debt. Afflictions happen to the righteous. David here is describing the life of a faithful child of God. The more mature you are as a Christian, the more you realize that your life is not your own. You belong to Christ and you love to serve him. And when you do, afflictions come your way. Remember Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and they will, and utter all kinds of evil things against you falsely on my account. (laughs) David says, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. But the wicked, you see, right? They have a different fate, do they not? In verse 21, we, we read, David says, affliction will slay the wicked. David is teaching us here about the boomerang nature of sin. You reap what you sow. Evil begets evil. What happens to the teenage boy or girl who doesn't listen to the warnings about the evils of drug use? Do they not begin a life of a downward spiral into greater and greater affliction? In the end, their own wickedness It'll turn in upon themselves, right? They will reap what they sow. So is the experience of all who oppose the righteousness of God. But not so for those who take refuge in him. God delivers them all. That's the deliverance in this life. Now for the, for the redemption and deliverance in the life to come. You know, David's teaching doesn't just profit us today. It profits us for the age to come. Verses 19 through 22, do they they not speak of a greater need of deliverance? We're all in need of making God our refuge so that he may redeem us, not just in this life, but for the age to come. How do we know that David is talking about this? Well, he uses the word condemnation twice. In verse 21, he says how the wicked, those who hate the righteous, will be condemned. And not so much in earthly courts, but in the heavenly courts. And in verse 22, he uses the word again. But this time he says, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. And then none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. David clearly teaches that the wicked are condemned. And those who take refuge in the Lord are redeemed and not condemned. Now, we need to broaden this understanding of the term wicked, you know. Wicked isn't just for those really evil people like Kim Jong-un or suicide bombers or those people who drive those gas guzzlers, right? (laughs) According to Jesus' definition, we are all wicked and in need of God's mercy. See, is it not a wicked thing to live in the creator's world as if he doesn't exist? Is it not a wicked thing to say no to God's offer of peace and mercy? But the humble person who has tasted that the Lord is good acknowledges that she has failed in countless ways to be the person that God has called her. And she's stopped making excuses and she's cried out to the Lord in her affliction. And the Lord hears her and redeems her and says, no condemnation for you. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. All who take refuge in him will not be condemned. No, instead they find out that God is the most loving, compassionate being in the universe. They find out that he is quick to pardon. 
And they will see that this salvation is really all the Lord's doing. They didn't have much to do with it other than to say, I want it. Do you notice the last line? It doesn't say that those who prove themselves innocent before God will not be condemned, does it? Now, what does it say? It says, all who take refuge in him. That is how we experience this peace, is we find refuge in him and the God who's willing, so willing to to pardon us and to forgive us in Christ. God has provided a way. You know, David prophetically points us to God's way. David points us to the cross of Jesus Christ. And he shows us that this is God's way to, he redeems us. How so? Well, the key verse is verse 20, right? Look at it. It's kind of weird, isn't it? What's going on here? He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. What? This obscure line points us back and it points us forward. It points us back to the Exodus. The people of God are enslaved in Egypt. God will bring one final plague upon Pharaoh and the land. And it's a horrible plague. The firstborn child in every household will die unless a Passover lamb is sacrificed and the blood of that lamb is spread upon the doorway. Ah, a Passover lamb. God makes this stipulation. He says... But you can't break the legs of the Passover lamb. Hmm. Passover lamb. No broken legs. David points us back to the Passover lamb. But he also points us forward to another lamb. Remember John the Baptist when he first saw Jesus in his, as he began his ministry? What did he say? Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And before Jesus went to the cross, he said what? I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom, a redemption for many. On the cross, Jesus died as the Passover lamb. The Son of God died in the place of sinful man, so that we who deserve condemnation will instead be free from condemnation. As Paul writes to the church in Rome, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you know what the Romans did to every person they crucified? They broke their bones. Crucifixion took a long time, and so to speed up the process, the soldiers would take a rod and they would crush the bones of the legs of the condemned. See, with broken legs, you couldn't lift yourself up to breathe, and you were soon to perish. In John chapter 19, we read that the soldiers came And they broke the legs of both the criminals besides Jesus. But when they came to Jesus, he was already dead. They did not break his bones. And John, in his gospel, chapter 19, he said that all of this happened in order to fulfill the scripture. John quotes Psalm 34, this exact verse. Psalm 34 points us to Christ. The Passover lamb who was slain for our sin. He is the one that we are to taste and see as good. He is the one we are to take refuge in. My friends, all of the earthly refuges will let you down, but Christ never will in this life, nor in the, in the age to come. He is our sure refuge and our strength.
you know, this past week, my brother was in town, so was my mother, and we went out to dinner, just the three of us, and we're sitting at this uh, quaint little restaurant, and an acquaintance and his family came up and sat at the table next to us, and we had some small talk, and then Rob, that was the, that was the, uh, that was the, the husband's name, he says, you know, you're never going to guess where we're going this week, and then, like, people typically don't, they don't give you time to guess, right? I was like, trying to, he goes, St. Louis, because, well, those of you who don't know, Leslie and I are from St. Louis, he says, we're, from, we're going to St. Louis. And they're asking all kinds of questions about St. Louis. And, of course, they said, hey, where should we go for dinner? And I said, well, it's pretty easy. If you're looking for, like, the best meal in St. Louis, my friend Jim Fiala owns the most amazing restaurant. It's been ranked as one of the tops in America. It's called The Crossing. You should go there. They both took notes. They asked lots of questions. I taught them on where it was and the attire. Of course, they knew that it was probably open at 8 if they went then. And then a few days later, I received a text from Rob. It was just six words. Here's what he said. The crossing is off the chain. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, that's like a good thing. That's like six stars out of five or something. A few days later, he sent another text. He says, thanks for the recommendation. It was one of the best meals we've had in a long time. My friends, isn't there great joy and satisfaction when you refer somebody someplace and they go and they delight in it and they end up rejoicing just like you? How much more so Psalm 34? Psalm 34 is meant to change us this morning. We cannot walk out of here the same. The offer is for all of us. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is, is everyone who take refuge in him. Now, some of you need to do this for the first time. Stop making excuses and humble yourself before God. You need to see your need for him. You need to taste and see that he is good. Make him your refuge. You can do that right now in this very moment. As, as the followers of Christ come forward to receive communion, remain in your seat and receive Christ. There's a prayer in the back of your bulletin where you can make it your own and do that. I encourage you to. But others here, right, most of us, we, we have received God's mercy and, and his grace. But perhaps you're here this morning and you're a little bit sidetracked in your walk with the Lord. Maybe you're tasting and seeing other things and looking for them to bring happiness and contentment. Know this, guess what? We've got a reservation. I think it's for like 100 people for a meal this morning. It's the Lord's Supper. You know, no offense to my friend Jim Fiala, but this side of heaven, there is no meal that satisfies the soul like the Lord's Supper. It reminds us of God's unconditional love towards us. It reminds us that we are sinners saved by grace, the grace of a good and merciful God. It reminds us that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It reminds us that though there be afflictions, God delivers us from them all. It reminds us that, that the Lord sees and hears and comes near and saves. Now let us together rejoice, saying, taste and see that the Lord is good. May we be blessed as those who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would give us even more wisdom. Help us to have even a greater reverence and awe. Yes, that we would fear you in a good way. That we would 
cast aside all other things that encumber us other than a relationship with you. May your goodness come into our lives as we seek you. Uh, May we experience your mercy and your grace as we feed on you, we pray. Amen.